Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, June 12th, 2009. This week, episode 129 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always my pleasure, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We've also got the lovely environmental Annie and Koalecki with us. Thanks, Joe. Good, Good afternoon. Good morning, Anne. And, of course, at the controls is the wingman. All right. Good day, Chris. Uh, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, will be joining us at halftime and for the roundup, as usual. Today's segments include... The Microband Trivia Question. We've got Mr. Wayne A. Baker, professional engineer and certified industrial hygienist with Michaels Engineering, going to join us for the hour today. At halftime, we'll do the IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Fellman. We'll go back to our interview with Wayne, and then we're going to do the roundup as always. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors. We are delighted to have as our newest sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, Remediators Trust and Depend On. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at IEConnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. They use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Okay, Joe.
Congratulations to John Lepotair of MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Park, Florida for answering his fourth microband trivia question last week. Remember, you can win a cool prize by outcompeting IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, June 12, 2009. What term is used by the American Conference of Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH, to describe the concentration of a substance to which workers can be exposed continuously for a short period of time without suffering from irritation, chronic or irreversible tissue damage, narcosis of sufficient degree to increase the likelihood of accidental injury, impair self-rescue, or materially reduce their work efficiency. Back to you, Joe. All right. I forgot to mention that um, to contact the show, let's see here, you can go to 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547 all you have to do is press the number one, and you can join the show. Or you can download the show from iaqradio.com. Just follow the link that says go to the show or get the show from iTunes. We also have those IICRC continuing education credits and IAQ Council renewal credits available by emailing me and requesting a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's move on and introduce our first guest, our only guest for today. Wayne A. Baker is, a, is the Indoor Air Quality Division Manager of Michaels Engineering, a diversified environmental and engineering consulting firm with offices in La Crosse, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, Wayne is a graduate of the University of Minnesota's Institute of Technology. He's a licensed professional engineer and a certified industrial hygienist with more than 30 years of experience in the operation and maintenance of various building types, including 26 years at the professional level in environmental consulting, construction, and energy conservation. Many of our listeners are familiar with Wayne. He's a first vice president at the Indoor Air Quality Association, been very active at ASHRAE and AIHA over the years, and has been a speaker at numerous conferences. Do we have you on the line? Welcome, Wayne. We'll get on mute, Wayne. Are we? Welcome, Wayne. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Great to have you. We've been uh, trying to hook you up on IAQ Radio for a while now. We finally got a chance. Wayne, can you tell us a little bit first about uh, Michaels Engineering and your position there? I'd be happy to, sir. Michaels Engineering is uh, is a company that was started in 1984. We've got a little over 40 total employees now. The bulk of our company's revenues are still derived from our energy division, which is really the workhorse and the driving force behind this company. 
that uh, that division continues to grow and adding staff it seems every every week the division of the company that i manage uh, revolves around traditional industrial hygiene services as well as uh, as our efforts to help improve and protect the indoor environment in schools commercial buildings healthcare facilities and single family homes uh, our third division it, quite naturally you would expect to flow from an, a, a, a true engineering firm is uh, our MEP or mechanical electrical plumbing design group where we have uh, uh, a, a cadre if you will of very talented individuals that I continue to learn from on a daily basis. Wayne can you tell us a little bit about your background and how it led to deciding to become a certified industrial hygienist? <laughs> well wow, that's a big question Cliff. Um, I, I think the succinct answer is that um, I happened to fall into this line of work about 18 years ago. The more detailed answer would, would go back to my undergraduate studies. Um, when I first started in 1974 at the University of Minnesota, I was expecting to attend medical school. and. Uh, as a result, took the required life science courses in biology and chemistry and, of course, the mathematics and physics and all of this, and um, ended up dropping out of school, quite frankly, and came back after taking a couple of years off, uh, tried, tried some coursework in mechanical engineering, found that it resonated in some fashion with me, and uh, went back to school full-time and finished up in, in 1982. The, the way that I really got involved in providing IEQ or IAQ services was, uh, was serendipitous to some extent in that I was working for some gentlemen on a contract basis performing energy audits, and those individuals ended up getting positions with a company called Twin City Testing in St. Paul. That's, that's where I grew up in, in the Twin Cities. And uh, they called me up as their practice was expanding, and they realized I knew something about ventilating systems and how buildings work. Called me up and said, boy, we've, we've got a good group over here. Would you like to come on board here at Twin City Testing? And I jumped at the opportunity. Um, it, uh, it, it's all unfolded since, since that point. And uh, as I say, I think it's uh, a reflection of just the, the uh, the prepared individual is able to step into an opportunity, and I can take very little credit for it. It was, uh, it was all uh, uh, perhaps happenstance, perhaps, uh, perhaps not. I guess, I guess a big part of good luck is uh, being well prepared and, and doing your homework. That's it exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Um, now, as far as you know, I know you got started in the indoor environmental quality, indoor air quality business, uh, kind of coming out of the energy side of things and the engineering side of things. But then you went on to become a CIH a little later in in your career here, uh, certified industrial hygienist. I want to make sure the acronym police don't get me here. And I understand from talking to you a little bit that that wasn't something you intended to do when you got into the indoor environmental quality business, but it seemed to be like something that um, almost was forced upon you or that you felt almost forced to do it. Is that accurate or am I stretching it a bit? No, I, 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 I think that's a reasonable way of saying things, Joe. And frankly, when I first got into this business, I, I was already a, a licensed professional engineer and uh, again, going to work at Twin City Testing, I had the great good fortune of 
finding myself surrounded by uh, a large, this was quite a large company, and uh, the staff of industrial hygiene and indoor air quality professionals at, uh, at that company uh, were kind enough to pull me aside and say, look, this is the way we really do things, you stupid engineer. <laughs> and most of those, most of those people were, were industrial hygienists, either graduate IHs or, or certified or otherwise. And um, I resisted, frankly. I, I, I worked in this business for uh, more than 10 years and, and simply was of the opinion that I didn't need this, the formality of this study in, in industrial hygiene. I didn't need to seek certification. Um, and in fact, I felt very competent in what I was doing and, and was, uh, was quite successful at it. It, uh, it wasn't until some years later that I discovered that certain client types, particularly healthcare, but also certain property managers and, uh, and building owners, uh, simply wouldn't entertain a conversation with me unless I had those particular initials after my name. And so I finally decided if I can't beat them, I guess I'll join them. <laughs> and um, in, in, uh, in, in 2001, uh, signed up for one of the AIHA comprehensive uh, industrial hygiene review courses and uh, took part in that week-long review course at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, one of the interesting sidebars to this story might be that the week I happened to be in Ann Arbor was the week of 9-11. Oh. And if it wasn't mind-blowing enough to be drinking from the fire hydrant, as it, as it were, in Ann Arbor, suddenly there was this distraction, this tremendous distraction, perhaps uh, one of the defining um, uh, events of our lifetime uh, in the, the tragedy that struck uh, New York City. Well, did this experience of going through this um, process, and it's a, it's a significant process of getting this certification, certified industrial hygienist, did it give you a, a deeper understanding of the multidisciplinary nature of indoor air, air quality investigations? And can you tell us a little bit about what the most important disciplines are that one must understand to be a good IEQ investigator? Mm, you know, what, what I've found, and, and this, is, this is just based on personal observation and having done this work for, for quite a number of years now, is that the individuals who seem to be most successful, those who are most competent in this line of work, are what I would call technical generalists. They are folks with a very broad-based background in the sciences, and, and those include um, not, not only uh, engineering, um, but an understanding of, of how buildings work, uh, and, and perhaps beyond that, uh, an understanding of how people work. Uh, in fact, I think I'd, I'd sent uh, a, a list of what the industrial hygiene community calls rubrics or areas of study, and there are, well, I count 15 of them. It just depends on how you count, but once you um, have a fundamental, fundamental understanding of, of engineering principles such as uh, psychrometrics, which is, uh, which is a uh, sub-study or, or a portion of the, the, the study of, of thermodynamics, uh, and heat transfer and mass transfer. Mass transfer is nothing more than a fancy way of saying how matter moves from point A to point B. 
And uh, but beyond that, having a background in chemistry, a background in biology, uh, ideally some microbiology, um, allows an individual who is going into a given building to fall back onto those fundamental sciences when you encounter something unexpected, or it allows you to walk in without blinders on, allows you to walk in and say, golly, I'm, I'm getting reports from the occupants here of headaches and eye irritation. What could that mean? It could mean any one of literally dozens of exposures or stressors are being applied to those individuals. You know, Wayne, I, I just want to uh, stop for a moment here. It looks like we've got a, a special guest here that came on to uh, say hello and ask you a quick question. Can I put you, uh, let, me, let me put the questions aside for one moment and say hello. Uh, hello, is this uh, our special guest? Hello, Andy. Hello, Puffin Joe. <laughs> hello, Andy Osk. How are you? Great to hear your voice. Uh, always You're looking pleasure. good, Joe. You must have your radio face on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Andy is our president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. Stopped in to say hello and uh, wanted to maybe ask a quick question. Yes, I do. Um, first, uh, before I ask my question, uh, I want to say how excited the Indoor Air Quality Association is about being a now being a sponsor of IAQ Radio. Um, we need to... Uh, reach out any way we can to our members, to our membership, and to the indoor environmental quality uh, community in general. Uh, I I hope some of our members are out there, and I hope uh, your listeners who aren't will consider uh, joining us. Thank you. We appreciate the sponsorship, Andy. It's been a great relationship. Um, can I can I ask your guest a question? Please do. Wayne, uh, as you know, I'm a an HVAC engineer. Uh, I don't know hygiene from spygene. In fact, Wayne usually makes you sit at the little scientist table. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what, I, well, what I want to know is what, what would be the most important industrial hygiene concept for a mechanical engineer working with HVAC, HVAC systems to understand? And I have a follow-up question. Yeah, of course you do, Andy. <laughs> so, Joe, what did I tell you about questions from Andy? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I, I don't know. That That's a fine question, Andy, and, and one that really doesn't have a very clear answer, unless it is to say that um, every HVAC engineer is going to have, at some point, fingers pointed at him saying, you know what, we think it's your ventilating system that's making these people sick, and it may well be the case. But with the broad understanding of the underlying fundamental sciences, we can all recognize uh, that it could well be something psychosocial. It could be simply a matter that people aren't feeling well in a given uh, environmental setting, a given office building, let's say, because they don't like their job. That's got nothing to do with the ventilating system. So uh, at one and the same time, recognize that the HVAC systems have an enormous contributing effect to the health and well-being of building occupants, but they uh, certainly are not the only factor in defining uh, and providing, maintaining a superior or even an adequate indoor environment. Okay, thank you. Actually, you, you raise a related issue, Wayne, is uh, so many of us 
and I, I'm certainly guilty of this myself. I'm an HVAC engineer. I tend to perceive indoor air quality as being HVAC only. Building scientists think of building science. Hygienists think of hygiene and so forth. So I think the, 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 I think that the important point you raise there is that you 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 got to understand that there's a number of things going to going to go, go into the indoor environment. Yeah, precisely. Actually, Wayne, what I really wanted, all I wanted to know, uh, and then I, I need to get back to work. I need to size and fix these back this afternoon. I, I might even get the register specified if I hurry. Is, uh, is, uh, six-inch duct. Boy, good luck with that one. Should, should, I, um, should I be washing my hands after I use the ductulator? Um, I, I, I think I'll let you guys go back to your serious science. Uh, Joe, as you know, uh, you are never very far from my thoughts. And Cliff, good, good, to, good to talk to both of you. And, Thank uh, you. And enjoy the rest of your uh, interview. Take care, guys. Thanks, Thanks Andy. Andy. Thanks for joining us. You know, okay, I, bye-bye. I, I just wanted to add to that, uh, Wayne, and, and you had a great answer for Andy, but I also wanted to add for the listeners that I think you would agree that even if it's not, the HVAC is the reason for the indoor environmental quality problem. It may be contributing in some other way, and there may be numerous different problems kind of coming together to cause the, the complaints. That's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, in, in some of my technical presentations over the years, I've, I've used the following analogy. Um, inexperienced investigators sometimes will walk into a building or, or begin to perform their, their survey uh, of, the, of the surroundings, the environment and from which the, the complaints are coming, and they will find a smoking gun. They will find uh, a 12-gauge that's laying out in the middle of the floor, and they'll say, aha, here's the problem. All we have to do is take care of this, and then everybody will feel better. And if we stop at that point, we might miss the Colt 45 that's in the closet and the Derringer that's under the receptionist's desk, you understand the analogy. It, it's more often than not, frankly, that we find a confluence of stressors or environmental deficiencies that lead to occupant uh, a response, an adverse response from, from occupants. Um, in fact, I, I, would, I would go so far as to argue that we as physiological beings are resilient enough, and depending on what part of the country you're from, I mean, here in the upper Midwest, we're all good, hardy, Scandahoovian stock, and by golly, we don't, we don't complain about anything. <laughs> but if, if insult uh, A uh, makes us a little uncomfortable, we'll, we'll tolerate it, we'll put up with it. But if, if effect B and insult C and, and contaminant D are suddenly piled on top of A, at some point, uh, even the Norwegians are going to start to complain. I understand. Now, we've got um, Environmental Annie here. This, Joe, a, this, this, this Norwegian is out of here. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> history. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, thanks for joining us, Andy. Um, Wayne, we've got um, Environmental Annie here, and she's a young uh, environmental uh graduate from uh, one of the local universities here and uh, she's got a quick question because maybe some of this industrial hygiene stuff is uh, kind of outside of her realm but she'd like to learn more so Annie? I'd like to definitely learn a lot more here Wayne so my question is can you recommend any articles or books on um, indoor hygienist application and indoor environmental quality? 
Hi, Annie. Yeah, you know what? That's a great question, and um, I'm afraid the answer is, to my knowledge, there there really aren't. Um, just like we need a new textbook on medical mycology, uh, the medical mycology course or, or a text that we used when I when I took my my class over here at the University of Wisconsin is from more than a decade ago. And as far as I know, there aren't any good texts out there. They don't exist at all for helping folks take the underlying principles of industrial hygiene and apply them in a common sense way to what what we do here at Michaels Engineering on a daily basis, that is to say investigate uh, indoor environmental quality in um, industrial and non-industrial workplaces. Well, that's a, a point that I, I wanted you to follow up on, um, Wayne. There is this perception that industrial hygienists, because of the terminology, and if you look it up in Wikipedia, I could give you the definition. I don't have it right in front of me right this moment, but there's this impression that because it's industrial hygiene, they only work in um, factories or workplaces, etc. Do these same concepts that help people evaluate and uh, design control methods in factories, can they be used in residential or in you know office-type settings? Yeah, my experience in that regard, Joe, has, has w would lead me to answer that question with a resounding yes, of course. In, in fact, um, the, the phrase or the title industrial hygienist is, is horribly outdated. I think it was two or three years ago that the AIHA polled its membership and said, and they asked the question, should we change our name? Is it time to change our name? And if I could have, I would have driven over to the AIHA and delivered my response personally, jumping up and down with my hair on fire, although it wouldn't have been much of a fire. <laughs> you get the point, though. Um, in, in Europe, in the U.K., and throughout most of uh, uh, th throughout the, uh, uh, the European uh, Union, the term is actually occupational hygiene. It talk uh, hygiene means nothing more than health. Um, it's not so much cleanliness, although there's an element to that. So it's occupational health. It, it's, it's the health of people in their workplace. And as we have moved from an industrial um, basis for our economy into an, the information age, people are working from their homes, people are working in non-traditional uh, workspaces, um, the, the practice of occupational hygiene has quite naturally flowed into the challenges presented in those indoor environments. Um, maybe, for example, my, my wife uh, is a, is a substitute, substitute teacher at uh, the, the schools, uh, the middle school and elementary school that, that my kids attend, and I think about her uh, occupational environment. Is that industrial? Certainly not. Is it office? Uh, more like an office than it is uh, a foundry, um, but a public school or a private school, for that matter, has its own challenges in terms of occupant density and the variety uh, of activities that the occupants are uh, are taking on on a daily basis, especially when you get into a high school where there are shops and arts and ceramics and painting and, oh, my goodness, uh, lions and tigers and bears. Well, 
Wayne, we're right, we're close to halftime, but I know Dr. Dieter Wiles got to be dying to get in here and ask a quick question before halftime. I, I normally bring him in at halftime, but we're going to do the eye connections. What's news? Let's unmute Dieter. Good day, Dieter. Oh. Well, oh yeah, there's Beethoven. Oh. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Dieter, any, any question? I just make a couple of comments and uh, uh, reinforce what Wayne just said. I think. An engineering degree is an excellent foundation for going into occupational and environmental health um, or industrial hygiene. <laughs> uh, if I had to, yeah, I have a master's and a bachelor's degree in uh, mechanical engineering. Yeah, no, not everybody is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I had, if I had to do it all over again, I probably would stick. Uh, with uh, uh, chemical engineering. I think I, I would have gotten an even broader background in areas which I needed later on for my job. Yeah, my first big job as a mechanical engineer was with one of the largest chemical corporations in the world called Bayer, and I had to learn a heck of a lot of chemistry in a hurry. So I think that is all right. I think also, yes, I think we have to revisit our our uh, bookshelf and i'm looking at quite a few when i went to school in the late well 67 there were no books in industrial hygiene just didn't exist we made copies of articles from the uh, medical uh, association journal and there was an industrial hygiene uh, journal at the time and from england and from germany germany was called staub and um so I, I I think we we can we can use a, a couple of new texts. The the areas have changed. The areas of interest have changed. Yeah, we don't need a heck of a lot of people taking care of coal mine dust. We know how to do that with ventilation and so on. And we have we have taken care of the big problems that we had in the steel industry, aluminum industry, chemical industry, and so on. Not that there is not enough work out there, but I think yeah, we are getting into areas where I had I, I had no schooling in quote um, uh, indoor environmental uh, uh, aspects. I learned later on from a couple of colleagues of mine from the Graduate School of Public Health, University of Pittsburgh. By accident, I learned something from them about bacteria and molds and so on. But that was not uh, part of our curriculum when I went to school. And I did that for four years when I got my doctorate over there. And we had some water people, we, we called them, there were some microbiologists, but uh, they did their own thing. And it wasn't really part of uh, the lectures uh, that we had to attend. Okay. And I leave it at that. Thank you, Dieter. Wayne, before we go to halftime, did you want to comment on anything that, that Dieter mentioned? Is there more? In the current, um, I know you only took a study review basically for your CIH, but are you familiar with uh, some of the programs for training people in um, Masters of Public Health, et cetera, and are they now adding more of this information that would be a closer fit for indoor environmental quality? I think so. Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we have a wonderful School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, and uh, those are some of the first people I would turn to if I were seeking additional formal uh, education. I want to comment on something that Dieter said, though. It's interesting. He should talk about his background in mechanical engineering uh, versus chemical. 
And, and I remember all these many years ago, uh, well, when I had dropped out of school, thinking, okay, engineering feels right. And I chose, I, I considered mechanical engineering and chemical engineering because what I was really looking for at that time were the disciplines that would give me the broadest exposure to possible career paths. I settled on mechanical rather than chemical because of my family background. My dad was a diesel mechanic for 42 years, hmm. and I grew up with wrenches in my pockets and go-karts and mini bikes. I was fearless taking apart small engines because I figured if I took it apart and could a bit, couldn't get it back together again, dad would be home soon. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Wayne, let's. Uh, we're going to put you on hold for just a minute here, and we're going to go to our halftime. I just love your horses. A newspaper man has to have a good story. Writing just news is so factually boring. I get assigned to bad Eddie's and Dukes. I Good day, leader of men, Glenn Fellman with IE Connections. What's news? Good day, Joe. Good day, Cliff. How are you? We're doing well. Very good, thanks. Thanks for joining I got us. A, I'm glad to be here. Quick question for you guys. We, we just uh, heard, we're hearing from a, an engineer who's also a CIH, and uh, he was uh, interrupted during his uh, conversation from, for, with questions from a attorney who became a PE, and then we got then we got some commentary from 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 Dr. Dieter, who's a chemist, but he's an engineer, and I think he can build rockets. I'm feeling a little bit intimidated by the knowledge base surrounding me here today. I hear you. Yeah, we're, we're doing our best to bring it to a level everyone can understand here. Yeah, they're doing a good job. Hey, I've got two really good stories for you today. Uh, the first one I want to bring to everyone's attention is a, a kind of a follow-up from the last two shows, uh, which you've had about Chinese drywall. Uh, some really good stuff's come out. And I want to make sure I attribute my source here, my good friends uh, Sarah Delaney and Daniel Gerber from the law firm of Goldberg Segala in New York, who gave me some great information uh, my headline for today is Chinese Drywall Insurance Coverage Litigation Begins. And here's the story for you, folks. Uh, as claims mount and federal and state agencies have begun a quest to determine who's responsible for the Chinese drywall fiasco, insurance disputes regarding coverage for the claims are beginning to make their way through the courts. Uh, in March, the first complaint regarding homeowners insurance for drywall claims was filed. Two Florida policyholders sued their homeowner's insurer, seeking coverage for property damage resulting from Chinese drywall in their home. Uh, they, sued, uh, uh, or they, they sued American Home Assurance Company. The policyholders alleged that they notified their insurer of a loss in December of 2008 resulting from the gases emitted by the drywall. It goes on to allege that the insurer verbally denied the claim based on contamination, but that no formal declination was issued. In its answer to this, the insurer denied coverage based on the pollution exclusion, the wear and tear exclusion, and the faulty materials exclusion. The insurer also asserted the claim fell outside of the policy period. Basically, it appears that the insurer is asserting that the damage occurred at the time the drywall was installed, not at the time it began to emit noxious odors. Meanwhile, uh, insurance disputes 
regarding uh, contractors and uh, builders, commercial general, liabil general liability policies are also on deck. In April of 2009, one of the principal defendants in Florida's Chinese drywall litigation, the Lennar Corporation, was widely reported to state that it believed that uh, its insurance would cover the drywall claims. The insurer for uh, Lennar has not commented. However, at the exact same time, in the Eastern District of Virginia, the insurer of another home builder commenced a declaratory judgment action seeking a declaration that it did not owe defense or indemnity to the builder for Chinese drywall, and this is based on the pollution exclusion and the work product exclusion. In this case, it's the Builders Mutual Insurance Company versus a, a home builder called Dragos Management Corporation. It's going to be very interesting to see where that goes. And then finally, on the civil litigation front, actions are being taken, taken to pave the way for a slew of litigation by or on behalf of homeowners affected by Chinese drywall. Senators Mary uh, Landrieu and Bill Nelson continue to voice their concerns about Chinese drywall at a federal level. Federal agencies have begun investigating the drywall itself, and it has been reported that a number of federal agencies are currently developing procedures for air quality tests. And just last weekend, the New Orleans Times-Picune newspaper reported that Senator Landrieu's staff said the federal tests could lay the groundwork uh, to bring civil action against the drywall manufacturers. And then last week in Louisiana, State Senator Julie Quinn sponsored legislation that would allow consumers to sue the seller of the drywall for all damages and attorney's fees. Currently, such suits are not possible under Louisiana law. So if that goes through in the state legislature, that will open up uh, a, a, just a tremendous amount of litigation from uh, you know, people who live in Louisiana against the manufacturers. So a lot of stuff's going on. For those of you who are interested in this uh, subject, I want to direct you to a great blog. It's insurancecoverage.typepad.com. Again, that's insurancecoverage.typepad.com. It's a blog all about uh, insurance and reinsurance issues. Uh, real quick, I'm going to get on to a second story, and it's a, also a very important thing. Uh, our Surgeon General of the United States has come out with a call to action to promote healthy homes. Acting Surgeon General Stephen Galson, uh, who's an MD, this week uh, came out with what is called the Surgeon General's Call to Action to Promote Healthy Homes, and this was at a press conference at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C. The call to action looks at ways housing can affect health. Its, its release is intended to initiate a national dialogue about the importance of healthy homes. Uh, according to Galson, the home is the centerpiece of American life, and we can prevent many diseases and injuries that result from health hazards in the home by following the simple steps outlined in this call to action. Some examples of things in the call to action include uh, things unrelated to indoor air quality, like uh, fall protection and, and that type of thing, fire escape plans, but there's a lot in the call to action that's very specific to indoor air quality. Things like checking gas appliances, fireplaces, and chimneys uh, for, for how they, uh, they vent, uh, keeping children safe from lead poisoning, uh, improving air quality in homes by installing radon and carbon monoxide detectors, eliminating smoking and exposure to secondhand smoke, and even advice about controlling allergens that contribute to asthma and mold growth. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff in there, and people in the indoor air quality industry really need to take a look at this because I think it may drive the future for some of the issues in this industry. And you can get that at uh, www.hhs.gov 
slash news or at surgeongeneral.gov. That's my news stories for this week, guys. All right. Thank you, Glenn. Always appreciate it. That's, uh, before we go back to Wayne Baker, we've got to thank our sponsors. We're delighted to have as our newest sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iqa.org. Ledges Environmental Insurance Services, the expert in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. We also have Gray Wolf Sensing Solution. They use advanced sensor software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation, visit them at wolfsense.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's get back to Mr. Wayne Baker. We have Wayne Baker on the line. Hello, Wayne. Hello, Wayne. Are you there? I'm here, Joe. All right, all right. Let's get back into a little industrial hygiene uh, we had a couple questions sent in and I, I did want to mention that um, the University of West Florida uh, Dr. Michael Finley uh, CIH and a CSP as well is uh, putting together a course on uh, the fundamentals of industrial hygiene applications to indoor environmental quality and Mr. Baker here actually helped us to choose the text for that and uh, of course Dr. Dieter has been uh, helping a little bit as well. So uh, if you want some more information on that, check out the um, IAQ Radio website. We'll give you uh, Mike's email. But anyway, um, one of the areas of interest that um, Mike sent a question in was uh, on the development of sampling plans, um, how you determine how many samples, uh, establishing exposure limits in these you know areas where there may not be formal exposure limits, and uh, clearance levels. Can you comment? I know that's quite a bunch of things at once, but if you want to pick one or try and cover them all in one shot, Wayne, give it a shot if you would. Well, let me see if I can give you the 30,000-foot flyover. When it, when it comes to OSHA compliance issues, these, the, the approach is, is well-documented and written out for us, and we sample at a certain flow rate for a given period of time, and there's an a laboratory analytical method that's been developed and verified through a rigorous process, and that that one that one's actually less uh, complex than uh, uh, than it might appear, frankly, at uh, at first blush. Um, but until we have the equivalent of Mr. Spock's tricorder, we're going to be left in our studies of the indoor environment taking our best shot at. Uh, what contaminants may be of concern in a given situation. Um, and uh, let me jump over for just a moment to this issue of a sampling plan or determining how many samples need to be taken. Again, 
in the traditional industrial environment, that's all fairly well documented, and we follow, in essence, a recipe card. When it comes to sampling for uh, microbial contaminants, um, I, I, I undertook quite a study that that question bothered me for the longest time. So I looked for answers in the literature, and you will find, uh, as, as published by NIOSH or uh, some of the best resources I found were a series of published uh, Ph.D. dissertations that you can find just out there on the web. Um, they make fascinating reading. Um, and my wife kind of looks at me and shakes her head and says, <laughs> Ph.D., what's wrong with you? But there's, there's always a, you know, some good stuff in there. And when it comes to sampling for fungi and bacteria, for example, Unfortunately, the, the best answer I've been able to find is that the only way you can tell whether you've taken a sufficient number of samples is after you get the results back and you engage some certain level of statistical analysis to say, is my coefficient of variation a, a, a reasonable number? You might be able to get by with just a few samples, or you may need as many as as 12 or 15 of each type in each space on several days over the course of each of the seasons. And none of us want to make this a research project, although I guess that would be fun, but none of our clients are mm -hmm. going to pay for it. So it becomes a matter of, frankly, um, taking your best shot at it, making some mistakes, and going back and performing what I've come to call a post-mortem on those types of projects or on all projects and saying, what did I learn here? What can I do better next time? And after 18 or 20 years of doing this, you, you, you pick up a few uh, hit, uh, hints and tricks and tips and, and you get better quite, uh, quite naturally at, at making those assumptions or, or sticking your best guess out there. You know, Wayne, if you were looking for something or suspected something other than a biological contaminant, what type of sampling methods might you use? Yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't, I, we get these kinds of calls, as I suspect a lot of our listeners do, we get these calls all the time. Hey, can't you come out and just test the air quality in my fill-in-the-blank home, office, school, uh, healthcare facility, my, my, my uh, medical clinic? And I, my, my cutesy response is generally, sure, you send us $100,000 and we will back up four semi-loads of analytical equipment, sampling equipment, and we'll spend all your money and we'll figure out just about anything you can imagine. Well, that's a, that's a dumb thing to do. So before we pull out any kind of low-flow sampler or, or sorbent media, uh, we, we have to look at the space. In essence, you're going to go through and figure out what the possibilities are. It, it, it's not unlike going into your doctor and saying, you know what, doc, I got pain in my abdomen, and it happens to be here in the upper left quadrant of my abdomen. And the doctor is going to go through a process of uh, perhaps it's a, a, a good physician is going to go through this. It's going to be a mental list. He's going to come up with a series of uh, possibilities after an initial physical exam to see how tender that particular area of your abdomen is and, and uh, checking your eyes, ears, nose, and throat, and so on and so forth, he's going to come up with a list from most likely to least likely that could be responsible for the pain in the upper left quadrant of your abdomen. And then he or she will order a series of, of uh, 
blood tests or x-rays or whatever the case may be, use those analytical tools and one by one rule out from most likely to least likely what the cause of that pain might be. The first question might be, did you have tacos for dinner last night? Okay. But maybe it's not that. Maybe you have maybe you have something much more serious going on. And that's exactly how we do our work. We're not going to pull out a sampler or back up those semis without a physical examination of the patient uh, guiding those Wayne, what sort of criteria is used to determine if an evacuation of space is recommended? Oh, boy. That's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) We left that for Annie. (laughs) Well, you know, here's something that I was taught by those those industrial hygienists who took the dumb engineer into the corner and beat some sense into me years ago, is that none of us have the authority to walk into any type of building and say, oh, my gosh, you've got to get out of here. You've got to evacuate. It's not safe in here. Um, and, and there's a scary word, if I've ever heard one, is safe. But um, what you can do, I think, again, the only people who have the authority to, to truly order the evacuation of a building are your local uh, or, or state health authorities. Those are the folks that have that statutory authority um, on, on Mere uh, uh, mortals such as myself simply doesn't doesn't have that right or that authority. But what I, the the way I typically answer that question is, if my children were going to school here, if my wife and, and my family were living in this situation, if I had to uh, send my best friend to work in this environment, I would uh, I would, and, and then you can give a spectrum of responses. I would tell them. Under no circumstances should you go in there. Uh, listen to your body. Listen to the response that your um, that that your physical being is giving you, and pay attention to it and act upon it. If you're in here and you're just fine, then why worry? If you walk into a building and suddenly you fall to the floor and go comatose, then it's probably a better idea not to go into this. <laughs> Yeah. Is Erst 1969 a vineyard and a vintage wine, or why is the person in the research of interest to indoor environmental professionals? (laughs) (laughs) A vineyard and a vintage wine. Right. For for everyone that uh, that, that is listening and who cares, I I guess Cliff and I met for the first time. I think it was the first time I met. Yeah, absolutely, at RIA. at an RIA meeting, and uh, and he asked me this question about, uh, and it's a great question, and again, another one of those that I suspect many of us have struggled with or have sought answers to. Where's the back of the question being this? Where's the background um, for the contention that mold growth will be initiated or will begin within 24 to 48 hours of a wetting uh, or water loss event, and again, it's one of those that I went searching for. And I'm going to I'm going to give folks a, a reference here that they can look up. It actually goes back to a publication by a fellow named Ayers, and as you might expect, it actually has something to do with the uh, with food microbiology. 
Uh, it was a publication from 1969 in a journal called, let me make sure I get the site correct here, uh, it's a journal called uh, the Journal of Stored Product Research, and uh, I don't know what this individual's first name is, the initial is G. G. Ayers in 1969 published a paper called The Effects of Moisture and Temperature on Growth and Spore Germination in Some Fungi. That information, that paper has since been uh, reprinted with permission in a wonderful text uh, that I purchased a few years ago published by, um, oh, who published this one? I think this is John Wiley's, no, this is Taylor, Taylor and Francis, and it was edited by Brian Flanagan, Robert Sampson, and J. David Miller. It's a fabulous text called Microorganisms in Home and Indoor Work Environments. It's expensive. I think I paid 140 bucks or something like this for this book, but it is among the best. So the answer to Cliff's question is simply this. At some point, this researcher, Ayers, did us all a great favor, and he took certain species of fungi and, and subjected them to varying um, water activity levels, available moisture, and temperatures, and waited to see when that germ tube first formed from the fungal spore, that signifying the initiation of the growth phase, the vegetative growth phase of these common filamentous microfungi that we call mold. All right. Annie? Is there a sort of science to ventilating an attic? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is another wonderful opportunity. And, and honestly, what I get the biggest kick out of sometimes is sharing information with people in such a way that uh, I don't necessarily catch a fish for them, but I teach them how to fish. That is to say, I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm not going to write out in detail the answer to, 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 the, to, the, to a question that one of my staff might ask me. What I'll do is I'll send them to the resource materials and say, read this book and start with this chapter and, and maybe these three pages of that chapter, but don't stop there. So there's a marvelous uh, text that was written by a fellow that I think most of us are familiar with, um, Bill Rose from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Bill wrote this book called Water in Buildings, An Architect's Guide to Moisture and Mold a few years ago. And if you go on to Amazon, this is published by John Wiley and Sons, but if you go on to Amazon, you can find this book. And it's not $140, although it's probably worth five times that amount. Yeah, this was published in 2005. And, and Bill Rose, in his uh, typical, wonderful, engaging style, has put together a book that is just a joy to read. It is full of tongue-in-cheek references and, and uh, subtle humor. Um, but this book, I will confess, tied together, it knitted together, if you will, a number of concepts having to do with building physics and how water behaves in the built environment. Um, he knitted together those concepts, and I, I'm reading through this book, and I had more of these, you know, the, the aha moments than I think I've had in a long time. Um, there's also some fabulous uh, uh, historical reviews of the development of things like 
static ventilation. And I'm finally getting around to answering your question, Annie. <laughs> no problem. The, the fact of the matter is that um, Joe Stebrook and others have, have done us a great service by publishing articles that make it clear that we can have ventilated attics, we can have unventilated attics, and they can perform admirably or they can fail miserably. But the fact of the matter is there's actually very little science. If, if you're looking to answer the question, you know, this 1 over 300 vent ratio in attics, where, where did that come from and what is it based on? You, would, you will be astounded to learn how little um, science that, uh, that, that those numbers, that very specific number, is based on. Uh, it goes back to the 1940s uh, and some, oddly enough, or interestingly enough, some research that was conducted by the Mechanical Engineering Department at the University of Minnesota, but by, by others as well. And, uh, and, and, and it's based on uh, a, a, a disturbing lack of foundation. So the answer to your question is, um, is there a science behind ventilating addicts? Mm, not really. Not really. It's one of these rules of thumb that we've, uh, that we've all seemed to, uh, that we all seem to have glommed onto um, and, and elevated to the status of, uh, of something that simply isn't. Wayne, we've got one more question, then we have to go to the roundup. Can you stick around an extra five minutes here? We're really uh, having a great interview. Yes, of course. Thank you. All right. Wayne, what's your preferred, preferred mechanism for defining fungal contamination levels and then applying that information to practice? Yeah. Cliff, I was afraid you were going to ask this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and just to be honest with you, the reason I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that question okay. is that I'm involved in a, a, a number of, of legal cases currently where that's a critical question. And... Uh, um, I'll give you the smart aleck answer first, and I'll just say I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the fact is there's, there's a lot to consider um, when, when you're investigating water damage and microbial growth in buildings, and there is no one number, uh, one value, one way of looking at the analytical results, one way of collecting meaningful samples. It's actually a rather complex um, uh, endeavor. And, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there before I uh, before I set myself up for trouble. Well, no, we we appreciate that, and you know one of the things we like to do is you know get a little edgy once in a while, and you know we thought it was gonna be edgy, and <laughs> Joe said, "Go for it," you know. So go for so it. We, <laughs> so we did. Okay, let's go to that roundup, guys. What do okay. you think? We're yeah, gonna go awesome. once around the horn. Everybody has a chance to ask a question or make a comment. Get Dr. Dieter back on the line. Hello, Dieter. Yeah, I don't have much uh, to add to this. I I struggle with the same problem with which uh, Wayne is struggling from time to time, and unfortunately, I don't have a perfect answer to any one of the questions. But I have I have found that with my 
my, my, my background, I'm doing this now, what, for 40 years or something like this, and uh, a science education, and I, I, I think I, I, I possess some common sense. Uh, you, yeah, you, you can approach a problem very nicely and don't make a fool of yourself and still get some answers. Uh, the question on, you know, how many samples to take is just absolutely incredible. And uh, literally every survey that somebody does, if I really wanted to, I can go in there and say, hey, you should have done that and you should have done that and wouldn't it have been better? And isn't that a fact that if you would have done that, you would have better answers? Yes, uh, that is the case. But, um, uh, yeah, you got to stop somewhere. Uh, like with, yeah, with an in infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of money, yeah, I can, I can tell you pretty well what's going on in a, yeah, a long time down the road. But, you know, sometimes you just got to come up with an answer and, yeah, that's why I, whenever somebody asks me, I said I want to see the place. I don't, I don't want to read a report. I, I, I don't know what it is, and I would like to see what is happening there. And that is the same thing with buildings. I'm just doing right now a building investigation. My God, this place is as clean as can be. Certainly cleaner than my house and many offices that I have seen. You know, what am I supposed to do there? Take a hundred samples to prove that it is way below everything well i didn't do that but um so that those are those are questions that do come up when you do this type of work whether it's in industry or whether it is in an indoor environment it doesn't really matter the the, the, the problem and the logistics are the same well thank you Dieter wayne i just maybe i could follow up to what Dieter said um, you gave a great answer to that question about the number of samples etc but i'm wondering if if you, um, when you don't have the resources or the client doesn't have the resources, whatever the case may be, to take what you think is an appropriate number of samples, do you note that in your report very carefully? Do you not do the job? What's, what's the response then? <laughs> well, I suppose there's a continuum of responses there, Joe. Um, folks like Dieter and, and perhaps myself and and I, I suspect a, a large fraction of your listeners would like to have thousands and thousands of dollars to take all manner of uh, bioaerosol and bulk material and, and surface samples. Uh, but it, we generally um, encourage folks to um, do the most thorough job possible in the walkthrough survey, the visual and sensory survey of a building. And if there are indications uh, that come out of that survey that uh, there's the potential for hidden or concealed uh, contaminant sources, be they physical, chemical, or biological, then we can use uh, a, a carefully targeted uh, approach or plan uh, for collecting what we believe will be the most uh, meaningful types of, of samples or uh, conduct the uh, most appropriate type of monitoring um, and, and uh, always work within the budgetary restraints that uh, reflect real life. I, 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 have to, I have to make two additional comments here, and they're going to be unrelated to your question. First of all, everyone who's listening should appreciate and know how very hard Cliff and Joe and their staff work on putting this 
program together. I was astounded. I'm absolutely honored to be to, to, to have taken part in IAQA radio today. And then as a final comment, Dieter mentioned common sense. And there is no substitute, of course. Um, as I'm discussing the matter of the scientific challenges and dealing with uh, damp buildings and microbial growth, uh, what I often tell my clients is that the science remains incomplete. And here at Michael's, in, in our practice, in, in my professional practice and that of my staff, what we've, the approach we've adopted is to, when, when in situations where indeed the science is incomplete, the science is weak, we get out a big old bucket of common sense and we apply it generously. That's, I think, the best we can do. Well said. Annie? Yeah, Wayne, can a depressurization system relieve IAQ symptoms in a building's uh, for a building's occupants? Hey, Joe, you know it's after one o'clock, right? I know, <laughs> I know. This oh, is good. It could be a I'm long one. Is there? Is, well, that's a tough question to answer quickly. I'm sure. Well, yeah. The the question I think goes back to um, a, a a a traditional industrial hygiene. Uh, approach to dealing with contaminant sources. And um, Annie picked up on that question, I think, as a result of a publication that I, uh, an article that I had published years and years ago. But it, it was in regard to um, a series of utility tunnels or, or perimeter tunnels or utility trenches, people call them different things, around the perimeter of elementary schools. We've probably all run into these uh, schools constructed in typically in the 50s had these just god-awful places. They're god-awful places to go into, aren't yes, they? They're they usually are. about 42 inches square. They may may or may not have a concrete floor. Uh, they, they were provided to run the steam and condensate and other utilities around the building to serve the unit ventilators typically. Um, but what we found in those cases with schools of that type is that when the surrounding uh, topography sure that's the right word, um, the, the surrounding uh, uh, property is such that we just can't seem to keep the water out of those tunnels, uh, we'll try our darndest with, uh, uh, with changes to grading or maybe drain tile or, again, common sense approaches. But every once in a while you come across one where, for whatever reason, you just can't keep the water out of the darn things. And they do uh, connect to the occupied space, those tunnels communicate with the classroom spaces, whether we care to acknowledge that or recognize it or not, they do communicate to the with the classrooms. So what we've done, what we did in many cases was we, we basically threw our hands up in the air and, and said, you know what, I give up, I can't keep the water out of this thing, so I'm going to enclose it and I'm going to ventilate it, not, not for purposes of attempting to dry it out or pushing tremendous quantities of air through it, but to simply depressurize it to, I don't know, a few hundreds of an inch of water column, maybe several pascals. It, it, and this is a traditional, a classic approach uh, of, of engineering controls that is described amply in the industrial hygiene literature. It's what we use in microbial remediation, we're all familiar with that. You put up temporary barriers, you put in a negative air machine uh, to depressurize that space. You can do that on a, on a permanent basis uh, with these utility tunnels um, or in, in a multitude of other uh, 
challenging situations, we've resorted to isolation and depressurization, and it does work. Well said. I, um, by the way, I lived next to a high school when I was a kid, and um, those are fascinating places for 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> I think they also did them on nursing homes, too. Yeah, I've been, yeah. been in a couple of nursing homes. Actually, I'm going to take a tip from you. Uh, you, you had suggested uh, when your staff come to you, rather than giving them the answer, you tell them where to get it. And what I'd like you to do is tell our listeners where they can get the Baker's Dozen of Common Findings on IEQ and Ventilation Systems. <laughs> well, that's a presentation that I was, uh, I was very happy to, to give at the last uh, IEQA conference in, in Fort Worth. And I think it was well attended, and it was a lot of fun. It's a, it's a, it's a presentation, a technical presentation that... I try and cram into 60 minutes, and it really should be about two hours because I get so excited about this stuff. And all it is is a series of observations that I've made over the years um, regarding uh, problems with ventilating systems that I, I, I see time after time. And I started out with a, with a top 10 list, uh, with all respect for Mr. Letterman, and then I realized there were a couple more to add so I made it a dozen, and then I thought I'd get real cutesy and make it 13, so it would be a baker's dozen. <laughs> and if anybody's interested, if anybody's interested in getting a copy of that presentation, it's, I believe, it's on the uh, uh, conference proceedings memory stick that you can order from from the IAQA. I can just chime in there. It's right, uh, slash publications and you can download an order form there, and you can. Uh, Order that uh, memory stick for uh, 30 bucks if you're an IQA member. It has Wayne's paper and about 50 more on it. Wow. Excellent. Glenn, I'm sorry I forgot to make check and see if you had anything to add for the roundup. Well, you know, I had a question, but if I ask it, you're going to go another another four or five minutes. So uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I was going to ask Wayne to comment a little bit. I'll, I guess I'll throw it out there. Uh, for, for people, uh, homeowners who uh, may not have the resources to hire a firm like Michael's, uh, they're on a real limited budget, there's a wide spectrum of people who provided to our quality services, and we all know that uh, some of them may not be as competent as others. What advice do you have people who, who, who have indoor environmental problems and a limited budget and are looking for help? Mm. Well, the, fir the first place, and, and oddly enough, when we get a call of this type, the first thing we do is to suggest that folks call their local health department. Uh, oftentimes, for example, here in, uh, in, in La Crosse, we have a very good county health department. And as staff, um, uh, staff time and other resources uh, permit, they will go out and they'll take a look through your home. Uh, if at the municipal or county level you can't get help, you, you can't find someone competent, call the state. Call the State Department of Health, and again, please understand that their budget, their, re their, their available resources is rapidly shrinking, and they may not be able to send someone out. So if, if, if those, um, if those uh, potentials or, or possibilities um, don't pan out, um, I think you'll find that um, turning to the yellow pages is maybe not such a good idea. Um, the, the, the guy with the biggest yellow pages ad may or may not be uh, the best choice for your hard-earned uh, saw bucks. 
Um, but, for example, we uh, have put together a program here at Michael's that's just a few hundred dollars, and, and uh, I'll send out one of our graduate microbiologists. They have to be efficient, and they have to be uh, very practiced at what they do. So you don't have to spend $1,000 or $10,000 to bring out uh, you know, somebody with, with, with my credentials. You can find somebody uh, with maybe five, five years of experience or something in that range with the appropriate academic background um, who for a few hundred dollars can come out and, and perform a proper evaluation of your home. Um, I'm going to stop short at that point because um, those of you who are on the, the distribution list for something we call our IAQ briefs here at Michaels, um, you're about to get one. You're going to get one next week that touches on this issue, the business of certifications and, and the charlatans amongst us and, and how to protect yourself. Uh, the Latin phrase caveat emptor was never more applicable than it is in these situations. And uh, again, if, if any of your listeners or folks hearing this down the line uh, want to give me a ring, I'll be happy to, uh, to, sh to share that indoor air quality brief with them. That's very good advice. Uh, Wayne, I, I don't have much to add. I know we're really, really running behind. I do want to add that I, I got a chance to catch your presentation, Baker's Dozen, and, and it was tremendous. Um, I wish you would have had two hours myself. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in that issue um, to buy the go stick. ahead and buy the stick. It's it's worth the thirty bucks or, or whatever. If you, and become a member if you're not a member. What the heck? Um, all I'd like to do at this point, Wayne, I know we're running way over. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, well, simply this. Uh, I've been involved in the in the IAQA for almost three years now, and I'm just. I, I, I couldn't be more proud of the strides we've made. Um, as, as maybe some folks know, um, not that long ago, I was uh, on the outside of this organization lobbing bricks, quite literally, <laughs> at the Unification Partners and uh, some, some friends um, who have been involved in the IAQA for many years, uh, founding members, in fact, and friends that I met through ASHRAE, my involvement uh, in the Environmental Health Committee and other ASHRAE activities, pulled me aside and said, Wayne, uh, you know what, you're right. Uh, that, that group's got a lot of growing up to do, and you can either stand on the outside with your supply of bricks handy or you can get involved. So I would, I would like to encourage everyone listening to get involved. Get involved in your, your local chapter of the IAQA. Um, help improve this industry. Um, don't spend a lot of time worrying about the ripoff artists and the charlatans. Let's let's elevate the the base level of knowledge and competence in this industry, and uh, th those efforts will raise all boats and um, gain continue to, to to make gains in the respect for our industry that it sorely lacks. I think in some areas right now amongst both our peers um, within the medical community and the industrial hygiene community, engineering community, uh, but in the eyes of property owners and managers and uh, the, the, the clients that uh, in some cases so desperately do need our services. Well, thanks for that, Wayne. And if we could, could you quickly tell uh, listeners that you're, I don't know if you'd prefer they contact you by email to get a copy of that news release or your uh, your publication, or if you want to have them call, how do you want to do that? 
Uh, I, either way, I, I, email is probably the easiest thing to do, and and you, anybody can send me an email. My my email address here at work is simply my three initials W A B at michaelsengineering.com m-i-c-h-a-e-l-s engineering.com you can also go to the website michaelsengineering.com and look for information about uh, uh, key staff you'll find uh, a link to my email address there well Wayne we want to really thank you so much for joining us and hanging in there as long as you did Uh, it was a great show and we appreciate having you on hope to have you back again sometime my genuine pleasure, Joe. Thank oh, yeah. you so much. You're All right. Welcome. Well, thanks again to this week's guest, Wayne Baker. I also want to make sure we go before we go to thank the, my co-host, the Z-Man, oh, Cliff Slotnick. Pleasure, All right. And, of course, Environmental Annie, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Joe. The wingman, Chris Boisel, who's been at the controls. Of course, I want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and uh, Glenn Fellman for joining us with IE Connections, What's News, but most importantly, Thanks to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.